from uh, about 50 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hey, Murder Fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and this is Serial Saturday where every Saturday we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Enriqueta Marti, otherwise known as the Vampire of Barcelona. Enriqueta was born on February 2nd, 1868 in Catalonia, Spain, so let's get into some history for that time. Two years before she was born, there had been a rebellion led by General Juan Prime and a sergeant's revolt at San Gil Barracks in Madrid. This told the Spanish government that there was some social and civil unrest that could actually be used and harnessed if the people could be properly led. Some agreements were made and then laid the foundation for a major uprising to overthrow the monarchy, which was Queen Isabella, and to also replace the prime minister, and thus ushered in the Spanish Revolution of 1868. Also this year, we see that U.S. President Andrew Johnson was impeached by the House of Representatives, but was acquitted by the Senate. Later, the treason trial of Jefferson Davis began in Richmond, Virginia. The University of California was founded in Oakland. The city of Reno, Nevada was founded. And this year was the year that the Holiday Memorial Day began. A French neurologist was the first person to recognize multiple sclerosis as a distinct disease. It was also this year that scientists discovered the element helium, named after the Greek sun god Helios. And it was also in 1868 when the first volume of Little Women was published. The Jesse James Gang robbed a bank in Russellville, Kentucky taking with them $14,000. And Brigham Young married his 27th and final wife this year. So this was the atmosphere that she was born into. Now, Enriqueta's childhood was completely unknown, or at least that's how it seems. I couldn't find anything at all. No parents, no stories of her very early life could be found. Nothing about siblings. I mean, nothing. So this podcast will be a little different, but let's get on with the story. When Enriqueta was still a very young lady, she moved from Catalonia to Barcelona, Spain. She was described as a beautiful young lady, but came from a very poor area. 
When she settled in Barcelona, she obtained work by being a housemaid for the rich, working as a servant or even a nanny, and she did pretty well for herself. It was quite common for a young woman to go into this sort of work back then if she didn't come from money or didn't marry into money. During this time, Barcelona itself was unfortunately the center for pornography, supplying much of Europe with its exports of various media. They even exported to the Americas as well. The creation of pornography as well as sex work were very, very common, especially in what is known as the Fifth District. People in this district, again, very poor. Sources say there could be upwards of 30 people living in one house, and the houses were indeed small. There was widespread disease and famine. What work a person could find didn't pay well at all, and they were usually in dangerous conditions. And if you needed, say, medical attention, well, no one could afford that either, forcing people to pay visits to witch doctors. The prospect of ever really getting out of that level of poverty was just not good. Now, being a nanny and a housekeeper was respectable work, but many in the 5th District, including the children, were very often forced into sex work and sex trafficking. The children were not only made to sell themselves as sex workers, but they would often also be kidnapped and put into forced slave labor in what we call sweatshops and dangerous factories. Needless to say, it was not uncommon for children to just disappear. Enriqueta was no exception. She found she could make more money being a sex worker than a housekeeper or a nanny, so that's what she resigned herself to do. In 1895, when she was 27 years old, she did marry a man by the name of Juan Pujalo, who was a painter. They both did what they could to earn more money, including selling antiques and having to take charity and so on, but it would seem that Enriqueta was especially good with plants, so she set herself up in herbalism and advertised herself as a medicine woman. This would have been a most welcome sight in those days. Her marriage didn't last long, though, even though they never technically got divorced. Juan stated she had several affairs with other men, which obviously goes with the territory if she was a sex worker, and that he did not care for her, quote, strange, false, unpredictable character, unquote, and her visiting the areas of town with shall we say, questionable morals for the times. This was, of course, when she was working in actual brothels. Now, sources vary. Some say she never had any children. Some say she did have one infant son, but that it died from malnutrition, which was actually not all that uncommon. The infant mortality rate was shockingly high then, but her separation from her husband did little to slow her down. She continued to be a sex worker and also a medicine woman. She told people who sought her out for her remedies that she was able to cure tuberculosis and 
other diseases that were, at that time, incurable. She used spells, potions, and ointments she made herself. During the day, she dressed in rags and begged for charity, but she was also hunting, if you will. You see, Enriqueta was a smart and observant girl indeed. She watched and saw just how much money the very rich of that area paid for the services of children. So while she was begging in the streets, she also began watching the local children to see which ones were truly abandoned and ignored. She would approach them, take them by hand, tell them she was their mother now, which would unfortunately give these children some level of hope. How very wrong they were. At first she used the children she collected to help her beg for charity, but then she made them do the begging as she no longer had to, and she also began to prostitute them out to the rich. Enriqueta took the children to the wealthy parts of Barcelona at night. She developed a reputation quickly for being a woman who could be trusted and would supply children to wealthy customers. She opened and began running a brothel where she supplied young ladies and men, but specialized in children. Once these kidnapped kids were no longer of any use, she started murdering them. Then she began making potions and salves and whatnot from the blood, flesh, and bones of the kidnapped children that she routinely murdered, and she most often used the remains of children from infants to roughly nine years old. The blood of the very young children was what the elite wanted. She then sold her wares to the rich who swore by her products. And remember, this was during a time when there wasn't a lot of traditional medicines for ailments like what we have today. And if there was by chance an alert for a missing child, well, there simply were no remains to be found. Now she and a young man were actually arrested in 1909 at her apartment on Barcelona's Minerva Street after being accused of running a brothel where young children were being offered for use. She was 41 years old at that time. The young man himself was actually from a wealthy family. It later turned out that she was not tried for her crime because of her ties with her wealthy contacts. They didn't want their supply to stop, of course, so they ensured she got into no trouble. Enriqueta did so well at her heinous occupation that she actually became relatively wealthy. At night, she dressed in fine clothes and socialized with the wealthy of Barcelona. So, ultimately, she was living a double life. Her contacts among the higher echelon, if you will, served to keep her out of legal trouble and thus hide her wicked murders for an estimated 20 years. Enriqueta kidnapped her last victim, Teresita Congost, on February 10, 1912. I couldn't find her exact age, but guessing from photographs, I was estimating her to be somewhere around four to five years old. 
Now, while the authorities had not been putting in the amount of effort that they should have during all of those years with many, many children going missing, they took this one very seriously. The police and the city looked everywhere, questioning people for about two weeks with no clue until finally, one of Enriqueta's neighbors, a lady by the name of Claudia Elias, told someone that she had seen Teresita with Enriqueta. Claudia had become suspicious of Enriqueta after she saw the little girl. She asked Enriqueta if the little girl was hers, and Enriqueta quickly shut her window, you know. So Claudia again saw Teresita peeking out of a basement window on February 17th, so this is exactly a week after she disappeared. The person Claudia told that to then went to the police. So now at this point, the girl had been missing for 17 days. So a detective and two officers went on February 27th to Enriqueta's apartment to inquire about Teresita, but they told Enriqueta that they had been there about a complaint about chickens in her apartment. She let them in willingly, and as they entered the apartment, they actually found two girls, Teresita and Angelita. Angelita looked to be roughly around the same age as Teresita, and Enriqueta was immediately arrested. They asked Teresita how she had been taken, and she stated that Enriqueta promised her candies and then covered her with some kind of black rag and forcibly took her back to her apartment. Enriqueta then cut all of Teresa's hair off, I mean down to the scalp, and told her that her name is now Felicidad because she no longer had parents anymore. She gave Teresita stale bread and potatoes to eat, demanded the little girl call her stepmother, and would pinch her instead of beating her. Teresita said she was not allowed to go out onto the balconies. She wasn't allowed into several different rooms or near any windows. Teresita went on to tell the police that she and Angelita explored the flat one day when Enriqueta was not home and found many girls' clothes in a sack that was covered in blood and also a boning knife that had blood on it. Angelita told the officers that there had been a five-year-old boy named Pepito in the apartment before Teresita arrived and that Enriqueta had murdered Pepito on the kitchen table but Enriqueta was not aware that Angelita saw her killing this little boy. Angelita also could not remember her real last name, which made it difficult to identify her, but she did say that Enriqueta told her that her father's name was Juan Pujalo. So, Enriqueta was questioned about who Angelita was and whether or not she was her and Juan's father. Enriqueta said Angelina was in fact their child. Now the police questioned Juan. He testified that he had not even been intimate with Enriqueta for several years and he had certainly not had any children with her. So then she claimed that she took Angelita from her sister-in-law when Angelita was a newborn 
and that her sister-in-law didn't know because she had told her that the baby had been stillborn. When asked about Pepito, Enriqueta said that the boy had been entrusted to her by a family that could not care for him. She went on to say that he had, quote, gone out to the country because he had become ill, unquote, and that she didn't know where he was. The remains of fresh human matter in that apartment turned out to be Pepito's. Angelita went on to say that at one time she was forced to eat the flesh of a child who had perished a short time before. Now this is presumably again little Pepito. Detectives went back to the apartment, searched and discovered the very sack filled with the children's bloody blood-covered clothes and also the knife with dried blood on it. Investigators also found another bag containing about 30 bones that appeared to have been burned. Also in that bag were some dirty children's clothes. The authorities recovered about 50 pitchers, jars, washbowls containing preserved human remains such as hair, greasy lard, coagulated blood, bones that had been pulverized into powder, and hand bones. They also found her cache of potions, ointments, and salves. Detectives decided to explore two other apartments that Enriqueta had previously lived in, and they revealed even more evidence. They found traces of human remains literally on the ceilings and discovered false walls, one hiding a roughly three-year-old child's skull and several bones that came from children ranging anywhere from between the ages of three to eight years old. Some remains still had intact clothing on them. The type and condition of the clothing revealed that she had kidnapped the children from impoverished families. As the investigation continued, they were able to prove that she, with a number of accomplices, kidnapped the children and later murdered them, even using infant blood for love, quote, potions. Some other things they found supposedly include an ancient book with parchment covers, a book of notes where she had written recipes and potions in elegant calligraphy, a package of letters and notes written in a coded language, and a list with names of families and important figures in Barcelona. Now, this list was quite controversial since the public believed that it was a list of Enriqueta's rich clients and that, because of their wealth, they would not pay for their crimes involving pedophilia or of buying human remains to treat their own health. Police tried to stop the list from leaking, but rumors ran rampant that it was a client list of doctors, politicians, businessmen, and bankers. Enriqueta stated that she had, in fact, performed many abortions, but that she had not murdered anyone. She also admitted that she had basically forced a teenage girl into being a sex worker. Now, there is a whole other side to this story. 
Historian Elsa Plaza spent years studying this case and wrote a book titled, quote, The Sky Underfoot, unquote, but it is in Spanish. The book talks about how Enriqueta was actually dying from uterine cancer and was hemorrhaging terribly around the time she was questioned. The book states that Angelita really was her sister-in-law's child that she had lawfully adopted from the mother whose husband had died and she just couldn't take care of it. It states some believe the bones in the house were from animals. It has been said that she was an ideal scapegoat to blame for missing children. Regardless, while awaiting trial, Enriqueta slashed her wrist with a wooden knife in an attempt to commit suicide. This, of course, upset the public greatly because they wanted to see her stand trial. I mean, does this sound familiar? In the end, Enriqueta was killed by a fellow prisoner by stabbing on the prison grounds on May 12, 1913. She was never tried for her murders or crimes. She was secretly buried in a common grave in a cemetery which is located on the mountain of Monjuic in Barcelona. The public was absolutely outraged when they learned of her death and, you know, air quotes death. Of course, you know, there were conspiracy theories that were all over the place, but the biggest one was that the ultra-rich who had hired her services or purchased children from her had her killed to keep her quiet. And though I rarely interject my personal opinion in these things, let's just say I don't believe Epstein killed himself, but let's not get into that. So it's hard to analyze the situation, of course, given that there are some valid arguments that she very well might not have done everything she was accused of. But if she actually did these things, why? Why would anyone kidnap children for the purposes of selling them into the sex trade or using their bodies for, quote, remedies? So, human trafficking, as we are all sorely aware of these days, is a huge problem and seems to be growing at a disgusting rate. According to the NSPCC.org, children are trafficked for sexual exploitation, benefit fraud or welfare fraud, forced marriage, domestic slavery such as cleaning, cooking, and childcare, forced labor in factories or agriculture, moving drugs, as well as other crimes. In this case, the children, if the story is true, were being trafficked mainly for sexual exploitation. I'm not even touching the potions, the salves, the blood. I'm not even going there. I found an article regarding profiling traffickers, and I will leave the link in the podcast notes if you'd like to read it. It states some traffickers are former victims themselves and become traffickers because of threats or actual violence against them, a very real fear of their traffickers. Stockholm Syndrome is another reason listed, and traffickers come from all races and domestic situations, married single, parents, or no. Sometimes the family is completely oblivious to the person's activities, and sometimes they're in it too. 
As far as whether or not traffickers have criminal histories, the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. So what other kind of jobs do they hold, right? Well, they are also lawyers, doctors, politicians, drivers, chefs, mechanics, and so on. Some are uneducated, some highly educated. In other words, there doesn't seem to be any real way to recognize these individuals easily. Traffickers motivated by profit take advantage of vulnerable individuals, ignoring the consequences of their actions on those lives. The traffickers' apparent lack of empathy or guilt and the ability to shut the self off from the impact of their actions is not unlike some of the noted characteristics of a psychopath. But an increased knowledge of the business of trafficking, in particular the profitability of such a business, suggests a more complex picture. Now, trafficking is highly profitable. It was estimated that in 2005, the proceeds of trafficking were $32 billion. That number rose to $150.2 billion in 2012. It is the fastest growing generator of illicit profit. Where there is a demand, there will always be a supply. So the classic psychopath, one who appears perfectly sane and yet lacks empathy and remorse, is deceptive, impulsive, manipulative, we know the list. These are associated with outcomes linked to greater criminality. So the needed glibness, the superficial charm, grandiose sense of self-worth, their own personal need for stimulation, proneness to boredom, pathological lying, shallow affect, callousness. Psychopaths are capable of learning the rules of public interaction and social conducts, not because they care about these things, mind you, but because it serves their purpose. The problem is not necessarily what a psychopath does, but his relationship to what he does. The psychopath understands right from wrong, but does not understand why. The percentages are from studies that are, of course, hard to do because someone would have to be caught and or admit to being a trafficker. But the characteristics of the, quote, pimps were consistent with those of a psychopath, two-thirds of the studied group, actually. It would seem that it would take a person with psychopathic traits to be a trafficker, and therefore, how are we ever going to completely stop it? What do you think? Leave me a comment on the YouTube channel, hit like and subscribe if you'd like, or consider becoming a sponsor of the podcast. Anything helps. I appreciate you guys so, so much. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.